Let's um, pause one more time. Uh, we have, I've just been prayed for, and I appreciate that, but um, just for my own benefit, just very briefly. Father, we just thank you once again. I pray just now that you would give clarity of thought and of speech and that you would uh, speak to and through me this morning that people would hear only your word, only the truths that you wish them to learn, and that you would, by your spirit, apply these things to our hearts. Help us to be more understanding, more appreciative of this marvelous plan, this marvelous mercy and grace that you have effected for us throughout the ages of human history. I pray, Father, that we would see and grasp a little bit more of these truths or at a deeper level than before, and may it impact our hearts and our minds. And we pray in Jesus' name. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in this sort of situation. I have uh, once or twice found myself at the uh, cash register with all of my things. They've all come through. They've been rung up, ding, 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 and you hand over the card, and you get the message, insufficient funds. That's a bit of an uncomfortable moment, isn't it? You're thinking, what happened there? And you're frantically trying to get on and say, some charge going there that I didn't know about since this morning? And, and you're, you're, you're feeling hot and you're feeling like everybody in the store is looking at you, like what is the matter with you? What are you trying to get away with, with here? And, and it's just very awkward. And um, at that point, you have to try to figure out another way if you have another way to pay. Otherwise, you have to make apologies and quickly remove yourself from the premises. <laughs> and um, try to do without. I've had occasion uh, to be alongside of someone else who found themselves in that situation. And it was even more difficult because uh, this woman had just uh, pumped the petrol into her car. And you can't give that back, can you? So here she was just in front of me at the register and beep, and there's that, there's that message. And you could just see her face go white, you could see how panicking she was, and she just she's fumbling through her purse and doesn't have any cash and just can't figure out what to do. And at that moment, of course, I knew what God wanted me to do and, and just say, you know what, let me just cover that. And because at that moment I was <laughs> I was in the ability in the place to do that by God's, you know, planning and provision. And so um was able to just take care of that that small bill and and just to see the relief. Of, of this woman, just to, just to see, you know, just the absolute feeling of rescue in that moment. And it's a good reminder for us to try to put ourselves in that place. If you've ever been there, you know a little bit of that, that sort of a feeling. Now, that is on the smallest scale, just an ounce of the principle that we're looking at once again today as we look at the Day of Atonement in Leviticus having a debt that just can never be paid, that, that we can never manage for ourselves, and finding ourselves, if we understand things properly, to be in the severest of circumstances in our debt. And to have someone who comes along and says, I'll take care of that. I know you can't. I know you can't take care of that for yourself. Let me take care of that for you. And that's what our Father has done through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so we are coming back to this ancient truth that we repeat again and again because this is the core of our faith. And so we are in Leviticus chapter 16. Uh, we began this chapter the last time I spoke. We looked at the first six verses 
and just looking at the basic principle of the limited access that a human priest, the high priest, had to approach God during that time and under that system of the Mosaic law and in the tabernacle later in the temple. Only the high priest was able to enter through the veil. And you remember as we discussed, uh, even through Exodus in our study in Exodus, we discussed all the structure of of the, the tabernacle and the temple and the um, the tabernacle or the temple proper was the part that had that contained the two chambers of the holy place and the holy of holies. And the division between them was this immense, tall, thick, heavy woven curtain, something that just it was absolutely impenetrable, uh, the fabric itself, and no one could reach without significant uh, scaffolding even to the to the top of this thing that was woven with images of angels cherubim throughout only one day per year could only one person pass through that veil the high priest the high priest could not do so until he himself had made atonement for his sin so a blood sacrifice had to be offered and he had to come with the blood humbly uh, through the veil. And once he has dealt with his own guilt and his own sin, and out of all the other priests, then he had to make atonement for all of the rest of the people of Israel. And we saw that there's unlimited access through the great high priest, Jesus Christ, for us today. Access to God still requires a blood, atoning blood sacrifice. We cannot approach the holy God as sinful people without the blood sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, and we find ourselves guilty. But Jesus is the uniquely qualified great high priest, and we looked at some passages in Hebrews, and we're going to look at some more today as we continue to look at this very significant day. This is the, uh, apart, I, I suppose it's on par with, perhaps, the Passover. We have these two most significant days in the liturgy of the people of Israel in the course of a year. There were other celebrations, other um, holy days, but these two were exactly six months apart. So they divided the year in, in halves. You had the Passover and you had the Day of Atonement. So this being at the opposite end from the Passover, the Passover, of course, celebrating that ultimate sacrifice made by Jesus, the Lamb of God, who was foreshadowed by the first Passover in, ex, in the time of Exodus or at the time of the Exodus with the lamb that was sacrificed, the blood, the blood that was placed on the, on the frame of the door, uh, the lamb roast that was eaten in a hurry and being ready to be set free as a result of, of what God did that night. And so that continued to be celebrated. And now the time of the Day of Atonement was a, a day when all of the sins that although there were regular sacrifices, there were burnt sacrifices every day and all day, and there were sin sacrifices that were brought, sin offerings that were brought when people knew that they had, had, had disobeyed God, that they had become guilty of the law in some particular way that came with their sin offerings. But now we come to the Day of Atonement, and this is kind of the clean-sweeping day for everyone, for all those things that may have been overlooked, for all those things that may have been underestimated just the uncleanness of the people being sinful people and prone toward fault, as we all are. 
And so on this day, this was to indicate that uh, there was a, a, a cleaning, a, a wiping of the slate for everyone through this particular very special sacrifice that was to be offered. And so as we look at the beginning of chapter 16, we see, uh, first of all, the annual atonement. This is what we're looking at in comparison today. We're going to look at the annual atonement of the Old Testament Israelites in Leviticus 16. We're just looking at verses 1 through 22, so this is part 2 of 3 on the Day of Atonement. And then we're going to look at the ultimate atonement for New Testament believers um, that we have in Jesus Christ. And there are some beautiful images in what God prescribed for the people of Israel. They, of course, could not know the, the richness of the significance of what they were foreshadowing and the things that they did on this day. But God knew, of course, and He prescribed these things not to be a demanding God to just see how many hoops he could make his people jump through, but because through these things, through the details of what he prescribed for the Day of Atonement, he was foreshadowing the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He wanted them to, to learn these principles by exercising these things year after year after year for centuries and millennia so that when the Messiah came, they would understand the significance of his ministry. So we'll look at the narrative intro here. Uh, this is, chapter is, is definitely uses some standard Hebrew narrative formatting, and it can be a little confusing sometimes. When you read parts of the Old Testament and you feel like, uh, okay, it said something and it kind of summarized the, the story, and then it seems like somehow they've gone back into the story and it's overlapped, and, and now there's different detail and so on. Yes, that's exactly right. Hebrew narrative style very often did that, where it began with a little brief statement about context, time, place, circumstances, for when the event took place. And then there might be a little bit of an overview, a little summary of what happens. And then it goes back into greater detail. It's kind of like, you know, in the old days when we used to have paper maps, who remembers paper maps? Atlases? Yeah, a few of you? Yeah. Okay, so when you, when you laid that thing out and you would look at... Um, a state, for instance, and then you wanted to, and you identified the city you want to go to. And remember in the old maps, you would have a blow-up of the city, right? Or you're looking at a city map, and you might have a blow-up of a part of the city. So you have this little extra little square, this extra box over here that's like zooms in, and you can see all of the street names and everything like that that you can't see on the bigger map. All, in, in, in essence, that's kind of what we have in Hebrew narrative form, where you have a little bit of the overview, and then zooms into some part of that, and gives you more detail, a closer look. Right? Similar thing where you have the account of, of David going out to see Goliath and uh, even his whole account where you see David and see him going, it talks about him going into King Saul's court and so on and so forth. And then all of a sudden you see him going out to the field where Goliath is and it's like Saul's never met this guy before. It's that sort of a thing. It's, it's inserting back into where there was a time lapse before. Okay? So we have this here. We have the first um, oh, 10 verses of chapter 16 that kind of give that little summary overview of the Day of Atonement. And then verses 11 through 22 and beyond, it goes more into the details of those things. So it kind of backs up again. All right, so uh, I, I don't, I'm sorry you don't have a handout, you, but, but there, are, there is an outline here. So if you've got a pen and some paper, you can take your notes off of this. Uh, so we are looking at A, the narrative intro into the Day of Atonement, verses 1 through 10. We see, first of all, the chronological context that's offered to us in verses 1 and 2. Now, you guys back there, I, I didn't do all of the copy and repeat of these, um, of these slides to put them between all the verses, but the verse slides are there. So if you 
maybe hop back and forth a little, little bit for me. Um, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 16 says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. So the context, the chronological time is because we've had a few chapters describing other things. This is showing us, okay, now we're talking about that time that was a few chapters back when Aaron's two sons, these priests, had not followed God's very explicit instructions. They made their own little proprietary blend of the, of the um, incense, apparently, and perhaps even attempted to pass through the veil themselves, and God struck them down. So that's, that's important that that context is mentioned because now God is saying, all right, now I'm going to give you exactly what you are meant to do exactly how and when and whom and, and so on and so forth. So, so that's a little bit of our context that places it in the, in the aftermath of those guys' death because of their offenses. Now the Lord said to Moses, only Aaron, your brother, does this. And this passing through the veil is important because of the mercy seat. Now it's not maybe the, it may not be the, really the best translation, really. It's the atoning cover. It's not really, it wasn't designed to look like a seat or anything like that, though there is a psalm reference that talks about God being enthroned, you know, above the cherubim, and some people have referred to, you know, inferred that that is a reference to that. But really, it's the cover of the Ark of the Covenant that was that place where God's presence was most intensely located. And that was the place where the blood was to be sprinkled there. That's where the atonement took place. So this, this word really is a reference to, it's the atoning place. So we see then the uh, comments that we looked at before. I'll just continue reading verse 3 and, and on through 10, where we have this narrative overview. Right? It says, but in this way, so this is God's specific, explicit instructions to Aaron through Moses as to what he is to do. In this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And he shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats, rams, uh, for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. So one for a sin offering, one for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. In other words, for the other priests as well. Then, verse 7, he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. 
So there we have the, the overview. Now we'll, go, we'll get into some of the details here in just a moment, but I'll just make a couple of other comments. As I mentioned, the mercy seat, just a couple of other things perhaps to make sure we understand this text. One is the garments. This is interesting that Aaron was to wear the very simplest form of the priestly garments. Now when he was to represent God to the people, he was dressed in a very regal, very kingly manner. He had the ephod and with all of the with the gemstones on it, the urim and thummim, and he had this turban with a crown on it, and and so on. And, and it was a, a very beautiful garment. There was a, a, an overlaying garment over the simple garment, and then these uh, the breastplate layered over top of that, and so on. And it was very rich, and and uh, a fancier headdress. Well, now when Aaron is to represent the people to God, he comes dressed not much fancier than a slave. He comes in the most basic. He's got, the, he's got the, the undergarments, the shorts. He's got the basic linen garment. He's got a linen tie and a very simple turban. And he comes before the Lord in absolute humility as a representative of the people, the God. The goats we're going to talk about in just a little bit, but this reference to Azazel, there have been three basic um, ideas as to what this means because this word occurs only here in this passage. So there is really no other place to gain understanding or any other context for what this word is referring to. Now, one theory that is put forward is that Azazel is the name of some particular um, demon or, or you know, false god or something like that. And so this, that the scapegoat was being sent out, you know, as somehow being offered to this demon. But that's pretty inconsistent with all the other things that we see in the, in the passages here, where God makes it very clear that the people are not to offer up anything to any false gods and any demons or anything like that. And, he, and God needs to make no uh, payment or, or anything to any other uh, any demon or entity. So I reject that notion. I don't think it's consistent with the counsel of Scripture. A uh, second one was that perhaps this, uh, you know, Azazel is a, a particular place out there in the wilderness somewhere where this, where this goat was, was to go. But I think a clearer, uh, and there's just, just no particular support for that, it's just a speculation. But uh, the, if the word is broken into two parts, they're Hebrew words, that means the goat that goes away. And I think that straightforward meaning makes a lot more sense. And that's where we have got the term, the scapegoat. Okay? It's the getting away goat. That's what Azazel means, if you just take it as two simple little Hebrew words. Okay? So I'm going with that one. We'll refer to it as the scapegoat. And so it is the, the goat that is being led away. Okay? And we'll see more of the detail of that significance as we go forward. All right? So there we have the overview of the ceremonies there. And What's going on? Now, we're going to look at the detailed ritual process, and that comes now in verse 11, where we go back into the, into the middle of that summary and, you know, uh, blow it up a little bit and see more detail. So, um, I'm going to go just read through verses 11 through 22, and then we'll make our observations, all right? So, follow with me, please. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house he shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. Just a repetition of the same thing. Verse 12, and he shall take a censer, that's a, you know, a, a, a bronze dish or the things that, or for, in the case of the things that went inside the tent of meeting is the other word for the proper 
building where the two parts are, the holy place and the, and the holy of holies. That's called the tent of meeting, as opposed to the courtyard that's around that of the greater tabernacle. So he's talking about the goats coming to the front of the, the holy place where they are cast lots over, and now he's going to take a censer in. That's usually gold for the things that are actually inside that space. But it's bronze when it's coming from the bronze altar. So he's taking this censer with coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense, beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil. And we studied back before how God prescribed in Exodus exactly the blend that they were to use of the incense that were to be used in the temple. So he's supposed to take some of this prepared uh, incense blend, and he's supposed to put it on top of these coals, and that's going to smoke. Let's make this, this, um, this huge aromatic cloud from this censer that he's carrying. So he takes these, these handfuls, two handfuls of them, and puts them on there, the sweet incense. And verse 13, he puts the incense on the fire before the Lord, and the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. So this incense, even this, this sense of, a, of this cleansing cloud, this aroma, this very special offering before the Lord comes before the priest even as he goes through the veil that comes between him and that mercy seat or that place of atonement, the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. Interesting. That's so that he may not die. Verse 14, he shall take some of the blood of the bull that he has just sacrificed for atonement for himself and for the other priests. He takes some of the blood of the bull and he sprinkles it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. So he takes, uh, he takes some of the blood and he dips and sprinkles seven times on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant and before the Ark of the Covenant. Thus, verse 16, I believe that's where I am, he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. So now he, he, he takes this blood and he sprinkles on all the other things. We talked about the, the table with the showbread and we talked about the, uh, the menorah, the, the lampstand and, and so on. So, and that other smaller altar that held the incense. And so each one of these things is, is receiving the atoning blood on this day. And this is to recognize that all of the things that humans, sinful humans touch become tainted. And God is absolutely holy, and so atonement must be made. Verse 17, no one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Interesting that this is this particularly made that there is to be one mediator between God and man on the day of atonement. Only the high priest can go in to even the holy place on this day, much less the holy of holies. Verse 18, then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord, that's the big bronze altar, and make atonement for it, and, some, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. Remember, there are four horns in the structure. Each of the four corners of the bronze altar had these, had these horns that, that jutted out. 
And so he's to take the blood of the sacrifice of the bull, which is for himself and for all the other priests. Uh, the goat that got chosen by the casting of lots uh, was sacrificed as the sin offering for all the rest of the people. And so now he is taking some of both, some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat, and both of these are being used to touch each of the corners of these, the horns of the, of the altar to make atonement on behalf of the priests and the people on the altar. Verse 19, he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, the scapegoat, and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. And that's where we're going to pause in our study today, is that conclusion of verse 22. So now just a, a little summary, first of all, of this, this, of this ritual. It's basically four stages, just to kind of sum up, because I know it can be confusing, you know, blood of the goat and the bull, and then he goes out and he goes in, and so on and so forth. So stage one for the priest. Verses 11 through 14, we see that the bull is offered as a sin offering, and at the same time, you pick up from further in the, in, from the whole context, that also one of the rams, remember there in the overview, there's a bull, and there's two goats, and there are two male lambs, two rams. Right? So you have the bull that's offered for the priests, a goat that's offered for all the people, you have a ram that's offered for the priests, and a ram that's offered for all the people. And then the other goat goes free. Did I get all that right, or did I say too many goats? Anyway, there's, there's one goat that's for the, for the people. The other one goes free. All right, so in stage one, uh, we have the bull that's being offered as a sin offering and one of the rams as the burnt offering. And if you remember when we studied the offerings, the burnt offering was the foundation. The burnt offering went all day and night then a sin offering would be, whenever a sin offering was offered, it was offered on top of the burnt offering. And so you have, you have the, the both. The, the burnt offering is kind of general acknowledgement of sin and the requirement of atonement before God. The sin offering is generally more specific, saying we know we're guilty. And so these two are done together. And so, it's, so you have the bull and the ram, the one ram, for the priests. Stage two, as he takes the blood in, uh, he goes in with the incense, right? He goes in, to, this is still stage one, sorry. He goes in with the incense, with some of the blood of the, of the bull, and he sprinkles it there inside the veil. He sprinkles it on the other elements inside the holy place. He comes back out and does this other sacrifice now, stage two, where he makes atonement for the people, verses 15 to 17. And so now we have the goat that is chosen as the, as the guilty goat, uh, the one that's going to be sacrificed anyway. And, and so he offers that and the other ram. So you have the goat for the sin offering for the, the ram for the burnt offering for the people. Those are offered together. And then the blood of both, the blood, uh, stage three, the blood of the bull and of the 
goat for the people. These sin offerings are then used to make atonement for the bronze altar, verses 18 and 19. Both of them, sin offerings, atonement for the bronze altar. And then, finally, stage four, we have the release of the scapegoat, verses 20 through 22. And we see that this goat is to carry, symbolically, the transferred guilt of all the people of Israel far away from the people. And so just as we saw this this symbol of the transference of guilt with all of the regular sin offerings, whenever an offering was brought to the temple, the priest who was taking care of the, the, the sacrifices at that time would, would come, and the, and the person offering the lamb or the goat in, in the place of their, of their sin would have to put their hand on the head of that innocent animal as if to indicate this animal is taking my place. This is my substitute. And so there's the symbolic transference of guilt onto this innocent animal just before it is slaughtered. Now we have this bigger scale, I guess, more ceremonial uh, transference on behalf of the whole people. You have the high priest himself putting both hands on the head of this goat, and with his hand on the, on, hands on the goat, he ad- acknowledges before God, we as a people are a sinful people. We have not always been faithful. We have not always done your will. We have complained. We have looked at other gods. We have not had true hearts. He goes through and acknowledges after the people the guilt of sin. And then the goat is set free. Very interesting series of events, I think. Let's consider what the significance of this is as we look at the ultimate atonement for New Testament believers we find in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the propitiatory, atoning, sacrificial Lamb of God. Now, all of these things, sometimes there are elements in the events that are prescribed in the Old Testament where one particular element of that is reflecting on some aspect of Jesus or particularly on His sacrifice to come or something like that. But here we have the complexity of this whole Day of Atonement series of events and all of it is pointing to the sacrifice of Jesus. There, there's no one particular sacrifice that can really encapsulate the significance of all that Jesus accomplished when he died on the cross. And so you look at these things, and all of these animals that are being offered, all the things that are taking place, are all reflective of different aspects of what Jesus accomplished in his one sacrifice. So we see the, the fact that uh, John the Baptist, this prophet of the New Testament time, recognized upon sight that Jesus, his cousin, humanly speaking, was in fact the Lamb of God, the final ultimate sacrifice being offered by God as a sin offering. And so we see his words, don't we, in John 1.29, and also in John 1.36, just a little bit later in the same general context, he said, we see the next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, he's calling everybody's attention to him, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Now, for people who lived in the midst of this sacrificial system still ongoing at that time, still bringing lambs and goats and, and bulls, young bulls to the, to the temple, this was quite a statement. This is the lamb provided by God himself for everyone. So it's like the sacrifice back down the Day of Atonement where, where these animals were offered for the whole people of Israel, but these were still just regular goats, regular lambs, a regular bull offered by regular people. John the Baptist is saying, now this is a different kind of sacrifice. This is the Lamb of God. He will not just cover, not just atone. He does atone, but he does more than just cover the sins of the world. He will take away the guilt entirely. Of course, we see that it's conditional as we read the entire gospel. Verse 36, same thing. John looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Well, now we see, let's look at the atoning and the propitiatory element of that. And it takes a little practice to say that word. You should try it a few times. Um, the propitiatory element of Jesus' sacrifice, the atonement to satisfy the Father's justice. That's what that word that, that translates propitiation means. It means it's a satisfaction, it's a payment to assuage wrath or to, have, to satisfy justice. So, I mean, probably the simplest one-word translation is satisfaction. Satisfaction. The propitiation, it's interesting. It's the very same expression that we read in Romans 3 in the context, of, I'll, look, I'll read them in just a moment, Romans 3, verses 23 through part of 25. The expression there about the propitiation by the blood of Christ is exactly the same expression as, because it's in Greek in the original text, as when Leviticus, originally written in Hebrew, when it was translated 200 years before the time of Christ into Greek, what we call the Septuagint, that naming of that place on top of the Ark of the Covenant, that sometimes is called the mercy seat, that, that translation from Hebrew and describing that place where Aaron would sprinkle the blood on the top of the Ark, the expression is exactly the same as we see in Romans 3.23 and 25, particularly 25, that gets, that gets translated propitiation. So it says here, Romans 3.23 through 25a, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, right, the Lamb of God. God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So God offered up for us the sacrifice that would satisfy His own justice once and for all whereas these lambs and goats had to be sacrificed day after day and year after year, God provided the perfect sacrifice in His Son, Jesus Christ. 1 John 2, 2 and, and chapter 4, 10, also in the same book, uh, use this word to describe what Jesus did. It says in 1 John 2, 2, He, Jesus, is the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so, in other words, it was His atonement was sufficient for all. Chapter 4, verse 10, in this is love. Now here we see that 
God wasn't just doing a business transaction. This was an expression of love. This is love. Not that we love God. Our tendency is to rebel. But that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The Lamb of God offered by God Himself to achieve for us what we could not for ourselves. To pay the price that we are completely unequipped to pay. Impoverished in our guilt. God paid the debt. And so that's what John 3.16 is about as well. And I know that we tend to be taught, you know, as children, oh, God so loved the world as though that's, it's a description of, of the immensity of God's love. God so loved the world. He, got, he loved the world so much that He just had to do this thing. But that's not really what it's saying in that text. The so is, is not uh, modifying the quantity. It is indicating the fashion that God loved. So God so loved the world. In other words, God loved the world in this way. This is how God expressed His love. That He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. This, is, this atonement, this propitiation, the satisfaction of God's own justice provided by Himself is His expression of love to the people He's created. It's a beautiful truth to grasp. So we see that Jesus is the propitiatory, atoning, sacrificial Lamb of God, but we also see that Jesus is the scapegoat. The scapegoat is also a picture of Christ. Romans 8, verses 1 through 4, talks about our status because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. In other words, none of us, because of our flesh, none of us could achieve holiness for ourselves. We could not atone for our own guilt and so on. And so God has done what the law pointed out, is that nobody can meet God's standard. So he did this by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He, he came to look like us, to, become, to take on humanity. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And so the guilt was put on him in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So God, because of Jesus' sacrificial atoning, was able to then take all the guilt of our sin and put it on him. Because he wasn't atoning for himself, he had no guilt. He was perfect. And as God-man, he could satisfy God's justice, and he could be our substitute at the same time as a human being. And so God could condemn in his flesh, he could condemn a human for human sin, but at a scale that could cover us all, because he's the God-man. And so Jesus was both the sacrificial lamb or goat, and the one on whom all the guilt was laid who took it away, far away, so that the people can go free. That's us. Psalm 103 verse 12 expresses this principle as well. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. A good, good verse to memorize. So we have Jesus represented even in the, in the scapegoat. It's not, it's not the people who went free because the scapegoat carried guilt with it. 
It took the guilt away. So we're not the scapegoats. Jesus is. Jesus is the one who bore the guilt away. And we see lastly that Jesus is represented even in the high priest himself. So he's represented in each of the, in all the sacrifices and in the goats, and he's represented in the high priest as well. We see in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So as in, in the Day of Atonement, back in the Old Testament, only the high priest could enter the holy place, and only the high priest could go even further in through the veil into the holiest of holies on that day. Only one person, one mediator between God and man on that occasion. But that was an imperfect person who had to offer up sacrifices for his own guilt. Now we have Jesus, the one mediator between God and man, who gave himself, verse 6, as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time, Jesus. And that's exactly saying what I'm saying, which is the testimony given at the proper time. In other words, Jesus is that fulfillment of what all of that was about in the Old Testament. At just the right time, as God chose, he came and fulfilled all of those things, all of those foreshadowings. Hebrews 4.14 says, We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens as that's kind of descriptive of as though the heavens are like the veil between us and God. He has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. He has penetrated the barrier between God and sinful man. I just want to read these passages now from Hebrews. Follow with me. Hebrews chapter 9, and we see here this, this fuller description. Really, Leviticus and Hebrews should all be studied together because Leviticus lays out the Old Testament sacrificial system. Hebrews shows how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all that was foreshadowed in that system. And they just go beautifully hand in hand. Just as, you've maybe noticed, the book of Daniel needs to go hand in hand with Revelation. All right, so here we go. Just uh, And this was hard because as I'm reading through Hebrews, I'm going, oh, that applies. Oh, that applies. Oh, that's so good. But we'd be here all morning just reading the whole book of Hebrews. So so I have made what I feel are actually brief selections here. But we're looking at Hebrews 9, verses 7 through 14, and then verses 21 through 26 of the same chapter. Hebrews 9, 7. Into the second, that is the Holy of Holies, the second chamber in this context, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people, describing what we've just studied. Verse 8, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. So they're still living in a time you know, when the temple was there and so on. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. That whole Old Testament system, it was always band-aids. It was always just putting a little plaster on the wound, the gaping wound of sin, over and over and over again. It could never really cleanse a person once for all. It couldn't cleanse the conscience. It couldn't take away the, permanently the guilt of the soul. That's what he's saying. Verse 10, they could only, it dealt only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared... As a high priest of the good things that have come, 
through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Just just the magnitude of the difference from those sacrifices to the sacrifice of Christ. Infinite. Verse 21 to 26, and in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship, the the human priest, indeed under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and, important verse, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. In other words, the, the tabernacle and the temple that was built by the people of Israel were just copies, they're models of the real things in heaven. So it was necessary for these copies to be cleansed in this way, purified by these rites. But the heavenly things themselves were the better sacrifices than these. Earthly goats and bulls' blood was not going to be enough to gain entrance to the presence of God in heaven. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What a great high priest. So the author of Hebrews offers up some exhortation on the basis of this. Let's look at these things to consider here. First of all, it should be clear, Jesus paid it all. There's just no other way. Why would he do all these things? Why would all that elaborate system be set up for centuries and millennia to foreshadow the sacrifice of Christ? And why would Jesus humble himself as God himself to take on human flesh and to endure the suffering of the cross if there was any other way? So Jesus is the way, as he said, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him, John 14, 6. So now consider the exhortations of Hebrews. That's not really important, but I think maybe it was Barnabas actually who wrote the book of Hebrews. We can have that argument some other day. But the author of Hebrews follows what we have read in chapter 10 with these exhortations for New Testament believers, people who have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Now, I've set this up in in the text slide here. I've done a little bit of formatting, the way, the way I've kind of separated the lines and bumped it over so that we can get the flow of what's being said here. We have these since phrases that, that are followed with uh, let us. So it's because these things are true, this is what we should do. Okay? So here, verse nine, starting in verse 19, 
1, since, this is true, that we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. Now, we're talking here about what was discussed in chapter 9, about not just earthly holy places, but we have access through the heavenly places to God the Father through Jesus Christ, the one great high priest. He has opened the way for us, he says. He has opened that curtain through the sacrifice of his own flesh, through the offering of his own blood as atonement. So since that is true, we have this confidence to enter the presence of God. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, so we have this perfect mediator, then he goes on in verse 22 to say, let us. Here's the application. And it's built right into the text. I don't have to come up with creative things. Right here. Okay? Let us, first of all, draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We can come before the throne of God and be considered clean and acceptable because of the sacrifice of Christ. So why wouldn't we do it? We can approach God with full assurance, with absolute confidence. You know, there are so many other, you know, pretty much all the other religions of the world. I've had conversations with people around the world as I've had opportunity to travel, people who have grown up in and embraced various religious systems. And, and one of the questions I ask them is, what is the basis of your confidence? How do you know that beyond this life, things will be good for you? Can you be sure? No one can be. Those who don't know Christ. It's always hoping, wishing, worrying, trying, striving, hoping. Some with greater effort than others, and which is all the more tragic, really. But they don't know. We can have confidence. Verse 23, let us, here's another second point of application, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. He said that he will bring us to his presence in a new body someday, that we can see him face to face, that we'll spend eternity with him in bliss, and he keeps his promises. He promised all the way back at the time that Adam and Eve first sinned that he would send a sacrifice to correct the rift that was created between God and man because of a sin. Through this sacrificial system, again and again and again, he was promising that one day there would be the ultimate perfect sacrifice, whether there be the perfect mediator between God and man who would cleanse the conscience and not just the immediate guilt. And so we can hold fast this confession of our faith, this, this knowing that Christ, Jesus Christ is my Savior. He's paid the price for me. My eternity is secure. I'm not worried about it. I know I will spend eternity in God's presence. I know paradise is before me. I don't have to hope. I don't have to strive and hope that, you know, in the, in the grand balancing act of my good deeds and bad deeds. I mean, one of the, most, one of the largest religious systems in the world believes that, that your good deeds and your bad deeds are going to be weighed against each other. But you can't ever really know the outcome because even if you, do a, uh, if you do a good thing and it makes somebody else happy and as a result they do a good thing to somebody else and that knocks on, then you keep getting credit for 
all of that knock-on effect. But it goes the other way too. You cut somebody off in the street and they get mad and then they go home and beat their son and their son grows up and becomes bitter and angry and he just becomes abusive to everybody. All of those bad deeds come back to account against you. Would you like to live under a system like that? I'm glad I don't have to. I'm glad that Jesus paid it all. He took care of all of it. So I will hold fast, by God's grace, by His enabling, I will hold fast the confession of, the, of, the, of this hope without wavering. If, if I am bullied, if I am legislated against, if I am thrown in jail, if I am thrown to the lions, by God's grace, I can at least be confident that I know my ultimate end will be in the presence of God. I pray that He will help me to hold fast the confession without wavering. Verse 24, let us, there's the third point of application, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. We've, we've been shown such love. And having been forgiven so graciously, why wouldn't we try to do the right thing out of gratefulness? Why wouldn't we want to reflect God's goodness? So, so we're encouraged to stir one another, to help one another to be more loving, to be more consistent in the way we live. And there's a way that this is done that requires contact. So we have to not neglect meeting together, as the habit of some apparently is. But we need to encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As we've studied the book of Revelation, as we observe the world around us, many of us are that the day is drawing near. And so all the more, it says, we need to be helping and encouraging one another. We need to stir each other toward living the Christian lives that God wants us to live so that others might come to know Him. It talks about, as Peter talks about, you know, living in such a way that it will call attention and draw people's attention to the, to the Father as they see your good works. They'll glorify your Father in heaven. And that's what we're being urged to do here. So these three points of application. Since we can have confidence to approach the throne of grace because of what Christ has done, because Christ himself is our great high priest who, who gives us access, then we can draw near, and we should, draw near with a true heart and full assurance to the throne of God. We can hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, and we can help one another. We consider how to stir one another to more love and good works. And all the more as we see the day coming. Let's pray that God will help us to do so. Father, we just thank you that you have given us your son. We thank you that you have given so many beautiful pictures, so many clues, so many instructional things in your word to help us to understand the significance of what he's done for us and what you have done for us through him. The Father, help us to respond appropriately, to take up these exhortations from your word, that we would frequent your throne, that we would come to you and fellowship with you, to talk to you, to pray, to bring our, our worries, our cares, our praise, our thanks, that we would just be in close fellowship with you because Jesus has given us this beautiful, blessed access. Father, I pray that you would give us the courage, the absolute strength of faith to, to hold to the confession of the truth without wavering, no matter the circumstances, no matter the pressures of this world that rebels against you. Help us to hold fast.
And Father, help us to be obedient, to help one another. Help us to think, to consider how we can stir one another, how we can help one another live the Christian life that you want us to live. That we would reflect your goodness and your grace and your love, your good works toward the people around us in this world, all the more in light of the apparent coming time when you will draw your people home to yourself. We pray these things in Jesus, our Savior's name.